Hello and welcome to another podcast from La Civiltà Cattolica English Edition. People often say of, of our age that it is the information age and it, it is of course absolutely full of information and information is power it positions people in terms of their authority and also of uh, of their standing in a community and it's especially important to the church because the church is a conduit of information which we believers hold to be eternally significant for our redemption now someone who's been puzzling over these and related issues and particularly the impact that the context of our communication in the information age can have is father paul sukup he's professor in university of santa clara and has been there and puzzling over these and related issues for quite a long while so paul is our guest and we're going to explore those topics and related ones which he's spent a good deal of time writing about in la civiltà cattolica Now, I've written to you, Paul, suggested some terms for our discussion. Is there some point at which you want to start the conversation and then we can go on? Well, let me uh, begin by uh, putting this in, in a context. Uh, you know, some of what I study goes under the heading of media ecology to look yep. at the communication systems as uh, complete environments for us. And so it's not just a particular message that comes along but it is also the context of that message which includes the technologies we use uh the people going using those things it includes the historical events uh you know and so we put all of those things together and that helps i think make sense of some of the issues that you are pointing out about uh everything from authority to the seriousness with which we should take messages it's easier to see the uh kind of media systems that work historically uh, and then we do our best predicting what may going on right now but historically this is not the first time cultures have gone through the kinds of uncertainty about authority that we're seeing right now uh in fact we go back far enough in the west at least i i don't know the eastern traditions well enough uh but very little had any kind of authority uh you had uh, rumors you had uh village talk you had you know small groups of people and the church itself ended up with a certain authority partly because it monopolized the communication patterns uh and so you had a regular pattern where you know a priest would stand up with the community every sunday and the sunday gathering was not only a time to celebrate god's word but it was also a time just to celebrate village life or the life of the city where people were uh and so as rumors and facts started swirling it's difficult to sort those things out and so if we find ourselves in this same kind of a um, mix of information of all kinds of levels do i believe this do i not believe this is it fact is it rumor this has probably been the human situation for more time than we've had any kind of certainty about what information might be uh and it was only as we developed as cultures ways of managing information that we also managed what information is trustworthy 
Uh, we manage uh, forms of criticism of that information. Uh, and it can follow in some ways the communication media that was going on. This isn't to say the communication media caused all of this, but it grew up together with methods of vetting information. Uh, and so, for example, once you have printed information uh, and you have books published, somehow books took on a greater authority than word of mouth, uh, probably because it could be checked. Uh, you had people, then you end up with a whole structure of people preparing books. Uh, now we'd say fact checking books. But for sometimes that took 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, you might have a, a text, for example, that Erasmus brought out, uh, and then he would keep correcting that at every edition. And so it's really only the later editions are the more trustworthy ones. So uh, that's part of what, when you ask this question about the, uh, how much should we attribute to information, I think we need to have a certain skepticism until we come up with a way of checking things. Uh, we're dealing with new communication technologies uh, that don't have that implicit way of checking things. Uh, and it's harder for those of us of a certain age where we grew up with printed texts and then later uh, radio and television news that had a built-in authority. Now we don't have that. We don't have that on social media. So the authority begins resting on the persuasiveness with which someone speaks or the assurance which they speak or perhaps what seems to be the most uh, convincing case. That's why a lot of these um, conspiracy theories take on a life of their own because they have a certain attractiveness, they have a certain uh, plausibility to them. Uh, and then until it gets spun out so much that it doesn't make a lot of sense, people are willing to believe it. Uh, that's the nature of this kind of oral medium. And even uh, online things are much more oral than they are written with a sense of fact-checking and uh, journalistic reporting. Let me stop there in case that's not the direction you want to go. No, 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 no. That's good because it, 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 we can now cut straight to um, the church and its authority because, I mean, what the church has always claimed is that it has authority because of the terms and conditions of utterance and the type of person who is making the utterance mm -hmm. so it's very important for the church that it moves beyond uh the reckoning of you know someone at some time thinking this is a good idea to a point where they say this is what we believe and this is what we've always believed and this is this is the way in which what we believe is expressed now mm -hmm. now that's that's the big that's the big thing that you know when when people like your previous president come along and start talking about fake news and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it gets picked up and cliched and uh, run around the place. And in fact, it's got nothing to do with fake news. It's, yeah. it's got to do with carefully considered developed doctrine and, you know, that, that adapts and responds to the new challenges that happen age by age. But it's a very, very sophisticated process. And it's yeah. not something that just rolls into place and fits into place because there are people like Donald Trump saying that it is the case. He, yeah. You know, that's not the way the Catholic Church works. It's not the way theology works. Yes, there are lots of things that are contested and need to be contested uh, because they are up for 
contest. And the only way they're going to clarify is um, if there are people who turn around and say, well, you say X, I say X modified. And the reason I say X modified is that you haven't taken into account this body of fact or this, you know, develop ideas. And therefore, your ideas need to modify to accommodate what it is that I've come up with. Yeah, no, I think that's a good description of the process. And we look at it, again, within the historical development of the, uh, the church. I mean, we have those early church councils where you had people still trying to understand how to express the Christian message in the light of Greek philosophy, for example. You know, mm -hmm. could you use certain terminology that we get now in the uh, Council of Nicaea or the Council of Chalcedon? You know, are these adequate to the understanding? And this took centuries. It took centuries of reflecting on the scriptures, reflecting on uh, Christian life and, and so on. Uh, but the church had developed this process uh, through uh, conciliar means, through discussion. It wasn't one person, you know, who would make those decisions. Uh, but later, you know, they began to say that there were certain, if you want, offices in the church that would have greater authority. Uh, and so the, uh, uh, the, the Bishop of Rome or the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople, and, and, you know, as the development of church theology goes on, these were seen as having greater uh, credibility, if you will, uh, than a monk from a particular monastery or, or whatever. But this took centuries uh, to come up with, and that's why the, that process for theology is so trustworthy. Uh, and yet it was still contested even to the point of the Reformation, uh, where people are questioning, you know, what is the understanding of this or the other? Where have we failed in some things? And of course, you get the critique uh, of the reformers about the uh, the weaknesses or the sinfulness of the church. Uh, once we start getting into a more uh, systematized theology, uh, then again, there there are whole uh, what can I say um, methods of self uh, verification. And so, if a, a theological scholar has put something forward they realize that they need to provide ways to verify the claims and so on. Uh, to contrast that with some of what's happening in the political world, uh, you really have a rhetorical argument going on. And, and for a person like Mr. Trump to make a claim about fake news, this has nothing to do with news. It has to do with a, a rhetoric in which he is claiming the right to make a certain assertion about the body politic and about the desires of people. Uh, and if he has the other position, which again, in classic rhetoric would be the counter position that would be debated, uh, he simply undermines that by uh, refusing to accept it. it. It's fake news. It has no rhetorical standing. Uh, it's an interesting rhetorical argument because it frees you from having to respond to any claim that the interlocutor is making. Mm -hmm. Church is coming from a very different position. Uh, but what we've lost sight of a little bit is that sometimes the church authority was extended much beyond theology. Uh, understandably, in the history of the West, where you had a breakdown of any kind of governance, and certainly through the, uh, the Middle Ages and up till the post-Reformation period, uh, the church often was the only civil uh, group 
as well as an ecclesiastical group. Uh, but with the rise of the nation state, you start getting different political structures. Uh, but this took centuries. Again, the church resisted being displaced from the you know, absolute spokesperson for civil society. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly only in 19th century that we begin to separate church and state. And after the French Revolution, basically, yeah. the uh, kicked the bishops out of their cathedrals and, um, and, and started to sort out sovereignty with the people and all that sort of stuff that happened there. Yeah. Um, let's move on to talking about the... Um, fundamentally, something's going to be carried through an argument depending on how coherent, strong and forceful the shape of the argument is, the evidence in support of the argument and so forth that build up our confidence in the flow of the argument and the flow of the opinion. That doesn't really at all rely for, as you know, as Aquinas said, to quote authorities as, uh, you know, the, the basis and bulwark of your argument is the weakest form of argument. The most important form of argument is the coherence of your argument and the evidence in support of it. And then that's where in the 20th century, through the work of various philosophers, the method of conjecture and refutation came along. And that that was on the basis of better and more informed positions and arguments and all of that. And that led us from a view of divinely ordained, always existing, evidence-based, but not really, presuppositions that were carried down through centuries to one that, that is a bit more problematic, that says, well, look, you know, we'll, we'll stick with this for as long as it works, but it may not work for very long. And when it doesn't work for very long, we kick it out and we start again, you know, and and that's been the history of science. Science has held theories until it's had to kick them out. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, that's exactly how politics works. And it is also actually how religion works. We have a whole lot of things that work for a while and then we find they don't work. And so we institute new things and we're, where, as, as our present Pope has said, we're not so much in an era of change as a change of era. And the whole basis for our argumentation and support of a way of doing things is shifting profoundly. I, w- I would certainly agree. And, and we're also seeing a shift in the communication of media and processes that we use. If you think of this as an ecosystem where all of these things are together, You've actually described three different, if you want to put it this way, ways of knowing. Uh, there is the the church way, and this, as I said, came out of uh, classical rhetoric and then the kinds of argumentation that Aquinas would have uh, proposed. And then we tried to move that into, you know, a printed world where theological arguments would take a certain form in printed books and articles and so on. And, and that's pretty much been consistent for several centuries. A scientific knowledge proposed a different way of coming to understand, where in the church way, of course, foundational documents are the scriptures, uh, the the practice of the church, people's experience of belief, uh, law of charity, you know, however we want to describe Christian living. 
But science was much more of observation, uh, tentative conclusion, hypothesis testing, uh, taking a uh, probable solution, testing it again, continuing to change it. It was much more of a, uh, a contingent approach to knowledge until we could get something better, continual return uh, to those ideas. And eventually over time, there is a certain acceptance of this. Political reasoning has been something quite different. Uh, political reasoning is always the attempt to persuade uh, the body politic of how we should move forward. Now, sometimes it has been uh, simply a persuasion by violence where you have a, uh, uh, an army takes charge and you know anybody who disagrees with us is simply uh, marched off to prison or put to death. Uh, and then you gradually found other ways of, uh, of dealing with the political thing, how to move people along. Uh, but as we saw, certainly beginning in, in the World War I, because it happened to coincide with the rise of a lot of mass communication, uh, you had a rise of propaganda. We can do political uh, persuasion by flooding people with certain ideas. And if they only hear this idea over and over again, they come to believe it something that was perfected uh, by Joseph Goebbels in the Nazi regime. Uh, and this kind of control of the message became a kind of political persuasion. Uh, in, the, in, in countries opposed to that, the idea was we should have some way of checking these assertions. In a sense, it's trying to borrow some theological uh, method of looking at the quality of the argument from simply the assertion of, oh, there was something done and we have to react to it. But the political authority has been often based simply on emotional response to situations or the need to do something. So again, you've described three different ways and each one is connected with its own media. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the political persuasion is now much more associated with mass media, uh, radio, television, you know, who controls those channels. And now also we're seeing it coming up on uh, social media, which doesn't have any particular checking process at all. The most, most emotional voice, the loudest voice tends to carry things. Okay, let's go to that stuff that you were doing with Max Weber at the end mm -hmm. of the article. Yeah. And uh, coming at information through the typology suggested by Weber we can assess and categorize information. But that still doesn't suggest how and why it has the purchase on our attention, the authority it claims. Do we need to go beyond such typologies to find the answers to questions of, a, of authoritative claim over us? Do you know what I'm getting at there? Yeah, I do. And sadly, I don't have any quick solution for this. You know, there, there's certainly something to be said for Weber's kind of lumping a lot of things together under charismatic authority. Yep. That's certainly what we see in some of the political authority. Uh, it's the emotional argument. It's the uh, um, argument by the personality of the speaker, kind of the credibility or the willingness. Uh, in some ways, that's why we're seeing so many people now in sports and entertainment moving into uh, political discourse. Uh, because they, they, they're taking a, a charisma, which is developed in a different area, and bringing it, it over. 
you know, Weber doesn't really talk about, um, you know, the authority of uh, the barrel of a gun, uh, which I think that was Mao Zedong had used. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't really talk about theological authority, uh, the authority of a faith experience. Mm. Uh, although he finds, you know, leaders in faith can be charismatic leaders. Uh, but it seems to me there's a lot more going on about the sources of authority than just the uh, Weberian, you know, kind of trilogy of things that he had suggested. Now, um, let's try to pull this all together. And what would you highlight as the key things the Catholic Church has to attend to in this information age to retain its voice, make a contribution and move the conversation on. What's the most important thing you think? Okay, I think A, to have a voice, to, uh, to be present in the discourse and not necessarily the discourse which just insists that we are right and you must listen to us. Uh, I mean, sadly, here in the United States, I think the bishops have taken themselves out of a lot of the conversations by insisting on, by right of my office, I have this authority. Yeah. Uh, people are, are not going to be persuaded by that. Well, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, you know, the, the Pope, I think, has been much more uh, what accepted by people because he, he speaks in this larger context he speaks in ways that are simple concepts you know almost the same type of imagery that we see jesus using in the parables and other things you don't need a lot of you know education to understand when he says the church is a field hospital everybody knows we we need help and we need healing and we need people to care for us and yet uh, so i mean this is i think what the church needs to do is, is to be in these conversations and not necessarily try to be right all the time. Uh, and that's a, that's a burden because we say, well, we have a, a, a message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Why should I allow anyone else to have a voice in this conversation? And I think we, we, the church traps herself in this need to be correct and the need to be the only voice. People are simply not going to accept that. And they don't. Yeah. And I think the other thing, the old cliche attributed to Francis of Assisi, you know, preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words. Yeah. Now, yeah. this Pope is a very good example yeah. of someone who preaches far more effectively through action and mm -hmm. gesture than he does through words, because most of us can't understand what he's talking about. Well, I can't anyway, and a lot of the world can't. But you pick it up because you can see what he means. Yeah. And... Uh, He's very, very effective, and and that's there. So more of that, you think, would be a good idea, I think? Yeah, I think so, because, uh, you know, sadly, in the last two papacies, I mean, you, you had scholars in the sense that uh, John Paul II was a university trained in philosophy, still was writing philosophical works as Pope. Uh, Benedict, again, uh, you know, highly trained rational theologian. Uh, they're great as teachers, but I mean, most of the people in the church couldn't understand what they were talking about. You know, it's when John Paul II would actually travel and be with people, he had a much greater effect than things he would write. Mm. Uh, and I think you're, you're correct in that Francis connects with people in ways that probably touch them more deeply. Uh, and I think that's why, though, some people are, are unhappy with Pope Francis, 
because he doesn't use that kind of reasoned, rational, theological discourse that seminary education prefers. All right, Paul, let's leave it there. I think we've, we've covered as many of the fields as we possibly can, and I hope we've opened for our listeners an approach to this very significant and at times quite mysterious topic of language, its context, its meaning, its flow. And also its media, you know, the, the, the different communication media each have an affordance. They, they allow some things to happen, which couldn't without them. I mean, with writing, we, we get a fixity of, of things. Uh, yeah. With radio and television, we get a much wider spread. And, uh, and so we have to realize this becomes influential in how we hear and understand things. And when you change that, that leads us to this sort of era. You know, there's a changing era. Thank you very much, you Paul. Best wishes. Bye-bye. Subscriptions to the English edition of La Civiltà Cattolica range in price from $14.95 to $200. For short-term and annual subscriptions, for individuals and for groups. For further information, go to lacivitacatolica.com, subscribe, L-A-C-I-V-I-L-T-A-C-A-T-T-O-L-I-C-A.com, slash subscribe. <laughs>